This is Near Death, where we shine a light on some of the darkest stories from the military world. To be honest, it's not for everyone. You'll hear about some pretty traumatic events, and this episode includes descriptions of war and attempted suicide. If you're okay to keep listening, here's Liz's story. The doctor said, your mum's in the phone, would you like to speak to her? And I remember thinking, how do I, how do you speak to your mum after you've done something like that? How do you answer the phone and go, hi mum, I'm really sorry I tried to kill myself. I'd become so normalised to that trauma, you know, seeing body bags that were half full, um, you know, say people dying and people watching people dying on the back of the aircraft. That happened quite regularly as well. And that's probably the hardest bit to deal with. When someone takes their last breath, it's obviously very, a very calm moment almost for everyone that's there in the, in the moment. But whenever we would have walking wounded of, of guys from the same, you know, battalion sat watching on, that used to always really strike me as, you know, how, how do you comfort that person? How do you say, look, it's going to be okay? Because he's just watched his best mate die at his feet and it's not going to be okay. As the years went on, yeah, Mert was, it, it took its toll, definitely. It was like scenes from MASH at the, in its heyday. So a wire strike is where a helicopter flies into a, a set of wires, essentially, and it's going to do the aircraft some damage. Um, we, as a helicopter fleet, refer to wires as helicopter killers because they can pull you out of the air. Um, certainly here in the UK, before we um, do any night flying, we do a huge recce of all the maps. Um, we fly the route during the day to check that there's no um, new wires that have been put up somewhere that we don't know about um, and that haven't already been added to the map. And uh, at night time, we always look out for them. You know, that there's always one crewman with their eyes out the window of the aircraft looking for sets of wires ahead. It's front and centre of our mind all the time. Um, and the UK is great because most of the time they're updated. You know, not always. There has been a, 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 an incident a couple of years ago where a crew in the UK hit a set of wires and, and it pulled them out of the air and they had to land on in Wales. Um, but unfortunately, places like Afghanistan and Iraq aren't quite so good at their mapping and um, people can put up wires left, right and Chelsea without you knowing. Um, and yes, I uh, had a wire strike early on in my career in Afghanistan, which was yeah the, probably the nearest I ever came to death. The wire strike in Afghanistan I had, um, we were doing a day's tasking up to Kajaki Dam, which is about 45 minutes north of Bastion. Uh, we took an understanding load up there and uh, dropped it off as normal. And we had another Chinook with us because back in the old days, the old days, we used to always fly as a pair of Chinooks, not with an Apache. So, up we went, dropped the undersung load off, and uh, as we lifted out of the landing site, or the drop site, uh, flew into a massive set of 250 feet wires. So the, the high voltage wires that you would see in the UK when you're sort of you know flying or driving around here that everyone will have seen at some point. The first thing I remember was this huge bang, and then the wires, uh, the smell of, um, of electricity burning. Uh, as the wires snapped out into the three o'clock of the, the aircraft. So I was at the front door and could see the wires sparking in the three o'clock. Um, I looked over my shoulder and my crewmate, Logie, was um, halfway through the centre hatch. He had nearly gone out through the centre hatch. And he was saved by his monkey harness that has attached him to the, to the aircraft. So he managed to pull himself back in again. Um, 
and the whole aircraft was starting to wallow towards the ground uncontrollably. So I thought we had actually ripped the aft pylon off. The aircraft was so out of control, which, I mean, if you did do that, that's a, obviously a huge disaster for the aircraft just plummeting to the ground. Um, but having never been in a crash before, I really didn't know what level of damage we had and why the aircraft was behaving the way it was. As we sort of wallowed towards the ground, uh, the pilot in the front said, I can't see, I can't see. And uh, I started to hold my harness. Um, we have two little, two little um, straps that hold your harness in on, on brackets. So I grabbed hold of them, expecting to hit the ground at any moment and roll. So I knew that at some point I would have to get out of the aircraft as we hit the ground. About 15, 10 to 15 feet above the ground, um, the co-pilot set out of control and managed to pull the aircraft back into the air. Um, and what had happened was the, the actual cockpit, the glass in the cockpit had shattered as we hit the wires and had come in over the handling pilot's eyes so he couldn't see anything. Um, and Marty, the, the co-pilot, had managed to, to rescue the aircraft from, from obviously hitting the deck. So we managed to limp back into the air, at this point not really knowing what had happened. We knew what had happened, but we didn't know what the damage of the aircraft was. So um, we did a full systems check, is kind of what is the stuff we always practice to do, and went through all the systems to make sure everything was, was working, and everything seemed pretty intact. Um, but we had to get back to Camp Bastion. We had a 45-minute flight back to there, and it was probably the longest 45-minute flight of my entire career. Um, I got my go bag, which uh, we always carry a go bag as crews. So here in the UK, it's usually full of some sort of dancing rig for a night out in the UK, somewhere if you get stuck. Uh, in Afghanistan, it's usually bullets and ammunition. So I got my go bag off the shelf that it was sat on and got it right to, beside me and put it on the, the seat right beside where I was, was stood on the aircraft. Uh, because at any point, I thought we might have to land on and essentially go on the run in Afghanistan. Our playmate, so the other aircraft that was with us, they flew along beside us and did a visual inspection of the uh, the aircraft from outside and checked it. the engines were still working, you know, looked for any damage on the on the aft pylon. And uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, if this had happened in the UK, the first thing we would have done was land on, shut down and gone to look at everything. You just can't do that in Afghanistan. You don't have that luxury. So we got back to got back to Camp Bastion, shut down. Um, squadron boss came to meet us as we landed to check that we were all okay and uh, and the aircraft was pulled into the hangar for some serious battle damage assessment and then essentially a crew from the UK to come out and, and check on it and, and start putting it to rights. Um, but my brother, who's in the army and he was a, an army engineer on links at the time, was also out in Afghanistan at Camp Bastion at the same time. And the next day he came up to me uh, at the tent and said, Liz, have you seen that Chinook parked up in the, the hangar? I said, yeah. Yeah, and he goes, um, do you know who's on it? He goes, they're lucky to be alive. So my response was, yes, don't tell mum. <laughs> so I'm very lucky to be alive, actually, and that's probably the nearest I came to death in my entire career. You know, it's all very well dodging bullets, but sometimes it can be the most unlikely things that can actually, you know, really impact the aircraft. With that particular incident, I was, I was still quite young at the time, and I sort of processed it and, and really locked it away in the back of my brain, very much so. Um, yeah, it had gone right into the depths of my brain, not to be revisited again, essentially. And um, I did mention earlier about there was a UK crew that hit a set of wires a couple of years ago. And I saw the pictures of that when they came out in the, they were in, originally came out in the press, the national press. So straight away, I messaged a couple of friends and said, is everyone okay? Who was on the crew? Because I still know a lot of the crews quite well. It turned out to be one of my best friends, Claire, who was the crewman on that trip, and another guy called Owen. Knew them really well, great mates, and it was my squadron uh, that had hit the wires. And the pictures that they had um, of the wire strike itself were almost carbon copies 
of the damage that was on my aircraft. And I look back now, that happened in August 2020. And a few weeks later, um, I started going to a proper meltdown of PTSD. I'd been unraveling a little while during lockdown that year because we'd been put into lockdown in 2020 in March. And all my coping mechanisms that I'd used for dealing with trauma throughout my entire career, really, you know, going to the gym, talking to friends, decompressing down the pub, had all gone um, throughout lockdown. And I was very much in my own apartment, you know, my four walls, just myself. Uh, and suddenly the only thing to think about was my own thoughts. All those memories from before, all the trauma that I'd seen suddenly started to resurface again. Uh, so as the year went on, we came in and out of lockdown and I knew I was starting to come unravels. I started to develop insomnia really badly and um, one night I was lying awake and I got up and started looking up the soldiers that I picked up on Mert, looking up the names of them from my logbook and actually Googling them and essentially turning what was the piece of really important freight into a person and finding out, you know, were they married, did they have kids, were they engaged and finding out their backstory, which was really dangerous behaviour. And I knew at the time, this is not, I'm not in a good way, but I didn't tell anyone. I didn't want to be a burden to anyone because during lockdown, everyone had their own things going on. So I didn't want to be that other person who just, you know, needed needed help. So I never said a word. As the, the summer went on, um, then that, that crew hit the wires. And I look back now, I wonder if that was one of the, the final catalysts because on the 13th of August in 2020, I woke up that day and essentially said, you know, I this is my last day on earth. I'm going to end my, li my life tonight. And spent the entire day um, planning how to end my life that evening, how to essentially go to sleep forever and end the voices in my head, end the constant noise that was going on in my head at that point. And, um, and without any emotion, I spent the entire day planning it with absolute detail, almost like I was planning a mission at work. And... Um, and not once felt any emotion attached to the whole day. I actually phoned the GP initially and, you know, said I've woken up with these suicidal thoughts this morning. It's very out of character for me because I'm usually quite a bubbly person. And uh, instead of asking if I wanted to come along and speak to anyone, they prescribed me a dose of antidepressants on top of some that I already had that I'd, I'd ordered previously that week um, for actually a neck injury that I've got. Later on that day, I skipped across to the GPs and um, picked up my lethal dose of drugs and took them at, at midnight that night. So by the very fact that I'm here talking to you today, obviously um, I survived, but um, I had no idea how. I don't remember anything after taking the pills. It turns out that at 10 to midnight, I'd actually called the Samaritans for 13 seconds. And then I'd called 911 and was on the phone to them for 10 minutes, none of which I remember. I only found this out when I was reunited with my phone after leaving hospital. I think looking back, it made me realise that something inside me that night still wanted to live. You know, there was still obviously a, a will to live in there somewhere. But my essentially PTSD, I think, and my, you know, lack of emotion, being able to attach emotion to feeling, um, made the whole day like robotic you know I was in a tunnel heading one way and I was only going one way that day and I look back now I wonder if my coping mechanisms for my time on Mert had been to just block that emotion out I think looking back now my behavior started to change during lockdown so it was almost the first thing that happened was the removal of the coping mechanisms so the gyms were closed I couldn't see anyone I couldn't interact with anyone and then if you recall the very first lockdown we had you weren't even allowed to bubble with someone you were on your own 
And uh, so it was just me for what was originally meant to be two weeks, I think, the first lockdown, and then that became six weeks, maybe eight, all on my own. I think the only interaction I had was the people at the co-op around the corner, and that was it. So the first thing that happened, yeah, was the, the removal of my coping mechanisms. And because I wasn't able to do all those things that I normally used to do, I'd look at my bike every day and think, right, just go out for a cycle, Liz, just get on the bike and go for a ride. And then I'd get all dressed into my Lycra, get all the way to the bike in the hallway, and then be like, nah, brains, not today, not today. Undressed, back to bed. And um, so that started to happen. And the girl that used to run every single day, you know, I used to do Ironman triathlons before lockdown. I suddenly couldn't even bring, my, bring myself to put my trainers on. And if we hadn't been in lockdown, and for anyone like watching this who sees those changes in behaviour in a friend, that's probably the first signs that someone's starting to, you know, have a few issues. You know, if you know someone who's always at the gym and suddenly stops going, or someone who's always down the pub and stops going, or vice versa, you know, is you know doesn't really drink but suddenly is down the pub every single night, those are those changes in behaviour that us as forces people are really good at picking up on because we live together we deploy together we eat together sleep together you know we're all in the same 24-hour bubble so you pick up on those behaviors really quickly and I've certainly seen lots of people I deployed with you know start to have those changes in behavior whilst we've been on debt or certainly when we go back to the UK and if I if we hadn't been in lockdown people would have picked up on my behavior changes straight away they might not even even happened if we hadn't gone into lockdown because they would have kept dealing with things and kept those um, coping mechanisms going. But nobody picked up on them. So over the space of about two or three months, this started to get worse and worse and worse. And and then it started to get into, the, you know, again, when you're not exercising, when you're not leaving the house, when you have no routine, which is really key for a lot of us in the forces, uh, you start to not be able to sleep. Because if you're essentially not doing much during the day and staying in bed all day, then whenever it comes to bedtime, your brain just doesn't want to switch off. Um, and then sleep deprivation is really hard on anyone's body. You know, the, if you can't sleep for days and days on end or nights and nights on end, that's when your brain starts to play tricks on you. That probably started to happen in the June, July time because we had a real bad heat wave. And then at the start of August, it, it just upped its, upped its game a bit. We had a huge heat wave for about five or six days and I hadn't slept properly at all, um, which actually is probably the, the start of the real unravelling. On the Monday morning of the week that I took the overdose, uh, sorry, the Sunday night, um, I took a drug called amitriptyline. So I'd been prescribed amitriptyline when I left the forces uh, for my neck injury. The reason why I left the forces was I ended up having a, a damaged neck, which, you know, is part and parcel of the job. It's still a job I loved and I go back and do it again tomorrow. But uh, the chinook takes its toll on anyone's body uh, when you're shaken to death for 17 years. So I, I developed a neck injury and I got med boarded out. And part of that neck injury was giving me um, some pain down the back of my neck and then he headaches. So I got uh, given this drug called amitriptyline, which I didn't take all the time. I took it sporadically, only when I was having one of these headaches. And uh, I haven't actually taken it for ages, um, but it's a really good sleeping tablet. So that Sunday night, having not slept for days, I took one of these amitriptyline, um, and then I had a really good night's sleep. So I took another one on the Monday night and the Tuesday night, and was had slept really well. It was the Wednesday that I woke up and I felt like I'd been, you know, hijacked by the Grim Reaper. The Wednesday morning I woke up and I was like, nope, today's the day. And I only now know, uh, having had my story in my incident, the amitriptyline is actually, well, it's an antidepressant, which I didn't know about. You know, I was taking it for, for uh, nerve pain. But it's the um, it attribu it's attributable to 60% of suicides in the US. 
and it's also a drug that's very heavily prescribed to a lot of veterans, or sorry, a lot of amputees, because it um, is a nerve blocker. So it essentially blocks a lot of those nerve pains that they have from, you know, amputated limbs, etc. And uh, and I think that's where it essentially blocked up my emotions that day. It had blocked everything. Antidepressants are very well known for putting people in a worse place before they put them in a better place, which means that, you know, whenever I called the GP that morning and said, look, I'm having these suicidal thoughts, you know, can someone speak to me or help me in some way? I think if that conversation had gone differently where he'd said, are you taking any other medication? And I said, well, I'm actually just started taking amitriptyline again. At that very point, he could have gone, ah, right, okay, this now makes sense. This is why you're feeling like this today. And even if he had looked at my notes, if he hadn't asked the question, but he'd looked at my notes and said, oh God, this girl's reordered that on Monday. She's reordered a repeat prescription. Maybe that's what's causing this. It's this drug. But but none of those conversations happened. And I, I wonder looking back now, if that phone call, you know, that morning at 10 o'clock had gone differently, whether or not I would have got to the point I was at in that, that evening. But yeah, amitriptyline is a really nasty, nasty drug for anyone watching this, you know, take it with caution. It's, it can be a very dangerous drug, but that's how quickly it happened. Really, you know, I, I knew I was in a bad place. I knew it was in muddy water, but from the Sunday onwards was when it started to just really come unstuck. Um, certainly the night that I um, took the overdose, um, I write about it in the book quite significantly about, you know, like a timeline of the day, because it was so robotic. In the evening when I'd had my last dinner, which I, I went to the chip van and got chips. And from someone who used to eat Ironman triathlons and train every day, I never used to eat chips. It was like, oh, well, if it's going to be my last meal, I'll have some chips. And that was how emotionally detached I was. I wrote my suicide note to my um, family and included some friends in there. And again, not even a tear was shed at this point. Um, I tidied the house, tidied the apartment. Um, and then, uh, you know, I had a shower at 10 o'clock and did my hair and makeup and put a nice dress on. And all of this before I then sat on the edge of the bed and took 95 pills. And I'd calculated throughout the day, you know, how many pills I would need to kill myself outright or to be a cry for help or to be in the 50-50 bracket. And the only amount I could get my hands on was the 95 amitriptyline plus what the GP had given me. So I knew I'd be in a 50-50 live or die bracket. Even when I'd taken all the pills, I knew I was in that bracket. Um, and it was very much dependent on what I'd eaten and how my body would react to everything. Um, and this was the research that I'd spent all day doing, totally, you know, non-emotionally. Um, even when I'd taken the very last pill, uh, I still didn't have any emotion, nothing. I think in hindsight, looking back, I'm very lucky that I don't, I didn't, I've never used alcohol to turn to, to for any of my problems. And I certainly never drank on my own during lockdown, which is probably, again, a, a bit of a saviour but I think if I'd have mixed them with alcohol that night it probably would have been a different outcome um, and if I hadn't lived next to the hospital I think you know again I probably wouldn't have made it I lived really close to the hospital and the ambulance crew that picked me up I actually thanked them a few weeks later for what they did and uh, they said they don't think I would have made it if I hadn't lived next to the hospital but I always used to look at suicide as the most cowardly way out. You know, I've, I've heard of a few people have lost people to suicide and it was always in my, in my mind, a real coward's way out. You know, you leave so many open questions at the other side of it. But when you're in that tunnel, you, you, you almost can't see that. You're just so emotionally detached, I think, by the time you get to that decision in life that you genuinely do feel like it's the only option. And, you know, I have a thousand friends I could have reached out to at any point that day. Uh, my best friend had texted me the night before because she knew I was in a pretty bad place in terms of, you know, rethinking things from work. And I texted her back and said, yeah, I'm all good. I've got a plan. And she 
is a psychologist and she didn't even pick up on that message and she kicked herself for days afterwards going why didn't I see that um, and I texted my mum that night and also said have a great weekend or a great week I think they were going away and I said I love you and I used to be very bad at telling my mum I loved her and even she didn't pick up on it um, but I think you know for anyone who has lost someone to suicide, that's kind of the message I always like to sort of, you know, try and portray to people is that there really isn't anything someone can do for someone when they're already at that mindset. I think the intervention has to happen before someone gets into the tunnel. And I always describe it as being in like a water slide. You know, I'd been handed the donut essentially that day by the GP and I was on the on the donut ready to go down the slide and there's no way I was going back the other direction. Um but you, if somebody had intervened maybe before I'd got to that point, and when I say someone, I mean, the emphasis is on me. You know, if I'd have opened my mouth and reached out to someone and said, I'm really struggling here, then I think the outcome would have been very different. But again, having had the career I've had and having been a female, I guess, in the forces, you never want to be a burden to someone. Um, I was never ever made to feel like that myself. You know, the lads would never have made me feel we the weaker sex for asking for help or for reaching out if I'd had a bad day on Mert. But coming back to the feeling like mum thing, I didn't want to be the one that was, you know, letting people down or being that burden. So I'd always just held it together. And um, and I knew everyone was, you know, having their issues in lockdown. So I never really reached out and went, I'm str struggling. So, um, yeah, the emphasis was very much on, you know, I should have I should have said something earlier. And it's okay not to be okay, but I couldn't even see that myself. The moment I came round in the hospital was actually really interesting looking back on it now. I... Uh, I opened my eyes and there was just faces above me, you know, all the doctors kind of calling me Elizabeth, which is my Sunday name, it's your name when you're in trouble. And I had no idea what had happened, where I was, what had happened. But initially I had this tube down my throat, I'd been incubated because I'd been on the high dependency unit for two days on life support. So I had this breathing tube down my throat and I remember thinking, I'm choking, I'm choking, I don't want to die. And my instant thought was, I'm dying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, and tried to grab at the, the tube in my throat to get it out and couldn't reach it because I was I had so many other tubes in, in all my arms and just lay there thinking I'm dying I'm dying help me and I couldn't speak I had tears rolling down my eyes and it, I look back now and think isn't it it's so strange that 24 hours later 48 hours later you know I, I didn't want to die it was the one overwhelming emotion of don't let me die but previously to that that's all I'd wanted to do was to die and it really highlights how your brain can absolutely play tricks on you and when your emotions are hijacked how different you know your, your brain can see things so I I was put back to sleep again straight away uh, and then came round a second time and uh, the doctor started explaining what had happened um, said Elizabeth you're okay you're in a hospital you've been on life support for two days and I there was a clock at the end of the bed and I remember looking at the clock and it said half six and I thought it was half six the next morning and it wasn't it was half six three days later so um yeah, I, I had no idea. I, it then suddenly came back to me what had happened and I remembered taking the overdose. I didn't know how I was there. I had no idea how I'd been discovered. Had my you know best friend brought me in? Had someone, had one of the neighbours found me? What had happened? I didn't have, all they could tell me was an ambulance crew had brought me in. Uh, I had no other effects with me apart from a suicide note, which I which the ambulance crew had picked up and the empty boxes of pills that were beside my bed. So I had no telephone or anything. And it was like, you know, when you wake up at the end of a night out and you've drunk too much and you're going, oh, what did I do last night? Imagine that feeling, but a thousand times worse because you don't know how you're still alive. And it was a really hard thing to get your head around. Like, how am I still here? What's happened? And 
as the kind of day went on, the doctor came around and was able to sort of piece together that there'd been a phone call and the ambulance crew had got a phone call. And then I still didn't know, well, who who made the phone call, who found me and made the phone call. Um, and then I, I eventually um, the doctor said, your mum's in the phone, would you like to speak to her? And I remember thinking, how do I, how do you speak to your mum after you've done something like that? How do you answer the phone and go, hi, mum, I'm really sorry I tried to kill myself. It's just, you know, I, so I said no. I said, oh, I'm not ready to do that yet. And the doctor was amazing. He said, okay, I completely understand. You don't have to. And I still lay there in the bed, really, not knowing what was going on. Um, I'd had the tube taken out by this point and I had to gag the tube up, which is probably the, the most horrendous experience of my entire life. Never mind being in Afghanistan. That was a hundred times worse than anything I've experienced. But um, I still couldn't really talk. So it was mostly just getting the information from the doctors and kind of trying to piece it together. Um, and then my little brother arrived at the hospital. And my little brother had actually been living with me up until about a week before the overdose. And he was just distraught. When he came into the hospital, how do you explain to someone who's been living with you, who's like, I mean, he's the, the most chirpiest, like, you know, uh, happiest chap in the world. And uh, how do you explain to someone what you've done? Um, so that was really hard. Um, and he said, you really need to speak to mum. Mum called back later on that day and I was able to take the phone call. And she was able to just help me piece together what had happened. So... Uh, she said, yeah, an ambulance crew, you phoned an ambulance crew. An ambulance crew had brought you in. It was 911 that I called at 10 to 1. Um, and I, I thankfully had left the door unlocked at the apartment, which again, I think if the door had been locked, I probably wouldn't have survived. But um, yeah, trying to piece your life back together after that was was somewhat of, you know, it was a, it's been an interesting two years really coming back from what I thought. When I left hospital, I thought... I was really euphoric, actually. I remember thinking, well, it doesn't actually get much worse than that. You know, you've tried to kill yourself. This is the low, this is the lowest point of your life, Liz. And actually, I was really naive. You know, that was just the lid had come off the tin and all the files had come off, like come out everywhere. But the real journey was then going to be putting all those back in and in the right place. And I spent the next two years really just, you know, going through my PTSD counselling and putting your brain and your life back together. What I had to do was take every single individual episode and read, kind of read the file as I describe it and acknowledge that it's okay to feel really sad or upset about those things, you know. It's okay to feel bad about trauma and it's okay to feel bad about someone dying, whether or not it's your best friend from cancer or whether or not it's the troops, you know, at your feet on the back of the aircraft. It's a normal thing to feel sad about that, you know, you don't have to be a machine. It's absolutely acceptable to feel upset about those things. So I kind of went through each of those events and kind of read the files and then put them back where they were supposed to be at the back of the brain and and um and slowly life started to get better again. I started getting back to exercise, which I think for anyone watching this, it really is key. I'm not saying everyone needs to go out here and run a marathon every day, but I started walking again with a lot of my friends and you know, I didn't need to go out and start running 10 miles a day, but even walking 10 minutes or walking for a couple of hours a day with some friends at the weekend really helped because not only could you spend that time getting vitamin D and fresh air, but you could also offload some of the stuff you were thinking. So anyone watching this, yeah, get out and walk is definitely a, a good top tip. But um, it was a long journey. My first counsellor was uh, a lovely lady who, uh, well, I was actually really lucky in that when I came out of hospital, I was straight into the veterans uh, mental health system and 
The civilian mental health system is not as good. You know, I went straight into the veterans' mental health system and had a counselling session within a week of me coming out of hospital, which is just a huge testament to the veterans' charities that run those kind of mental health charities. Um, and it was combat stress originally that put me kind of into that system. Uh, but my first counsellor was a lovely lady, but I just didn't click with her. So we had a couple of sessions and I would leave the sessions and just cry the whole way home in the car. And then I finished those sessions and Help for Heroes got me another counsellor. And her name was Pauline, which is what my mum's name is. So I don't know if it was that or we just clicked, but I got on with her really well. Every time we'd long on for our little Zoom sessions, I would just, within a minute or two of being on the call, the, the tiny tears tap was turned on and I would just cry and cry as we went through stuff. And I don't know which was right. I'm not saying one was better than the other, but I think from my point of view, I think it was good to cry during the sessions, you know, let it all out. And, uh, and everything that needed to be in there was, you know, came out. Um, but it was a long journey, you know, I, I still had bad days. I, I kind of equate it to surfing. I mean, I can't surf, but this is the nearest kind of analogy I can put on this is that I was really drowning. You know, I couldn't stay on the surfboard. I was just getting knocked over by every wave. And then as the counselling went on, I started to get better at it. You know, I started to have more good days than bad days, staying on the surfboard for a little bit longer. And then eventually, you know, by the end of 2021, I was in a pretty good place. I still had really big blips, you know, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like someone waved a magic wand and went, life's all good again. But and I still had dark days. And I think a lot of forces people look for a reason why that happens. So I would have some really dark days where I just woke up one day, I was like, no, today's a really not a good day or I'm not going to the gym, I'm not going walking, I'd make excuses again not to go out with friends. Um, and I'd want a reason why. I would search for like, what have I seen on the news? What has triggered me today to feel like this? And, and the truth is sometimes there's nothing. It's just like there's a bigger wave that hits you on the surfboard and knocks you over. You know, there's no reason why it's any bigger, that wave, it just is. And you just wake up some days and you just, yeah, I'm not, not humaning today, I'm not functioning. Um, but those days have become fewer and far between. So um, yeah, certainly then uh, throughout all that time, I started to write the book. I initially started writing a lot of poetry about my time in Afghanistan and then started to essentially journal from day one and almost a process that I think in my own head whilst trying to put all these files back in, in the brain. Three weeks later, I had what was essentially the book. Um, so whilst walking with some of my friends, I said, you know, don't laugh, but I think I've written a book. And they said, well, why would, my best friend said, why would I laugh? Send me it so I can read it. So I did, I emailed her a copy of it and she read it and went, this is really good. You should send it to some publishers. So I did. A month later, Pen and Sword came back and said, we'd really love to publish your book. I was just, you know, I just couldn't believe it. Um, and the fact that something so great and so positive has come out of such a dark time is is really brilliant. And I still, you know, even while the book was in the process of being edited and stuff, I still had the odd, you know, bad day and whatnot. But once it's hit the shops in September and I talk about it more and I talk about my story more, it's almost like, because it's out there for everyone to read now, it's so much easier to talk about what I went through. and. Um, and I've had some really, really good feedback from people who are also struggling with their mental health and it's helped them a lot. So if that's the best thing that can come out of it, then I'm, I'm a pretty happy person. I think if I was offered the chance to live forever, uh, win the lottery or have a rewind button, I'd take the rewind button every time. I'd still go back to day one and uh, yeah, join at 19 and, and live all of those adventures again. And I wouldn't change a thing. I, uh, none of the decisions I've made, I would ever change. Um, and even the, that fateful day in August, you know, 
what that has done, that has given me so much more armor going forward in life and how to deal with things, so much more insight into myself and coping mechanisms for trauma. Um, and out of that came the book. And if I wouldn't be sat here in front of you. I don't think if it hadn't been for that day and, and the subsequent writing of the book. But it's also allowed me to continue a purpose in life and kind of give back to people who are maybe struggling with their mental health, but also to inspire a younger generation to come and have the most amazing adventure like I had and join the forces because it really was the best. No ordinary job is the strap line that the RAF use and it really was that. Near Death is a BFBS creative podcast. Produced by Gisela Waldron and me, Joe Cowan. Sound design is by Sean Harper, with original music by Will Farmer. Our executive producer is Alex Griffiths. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, and why not leave us a review? And if you've been affected by any of the themes discussed in this episode, support is available at bfbs.com audience support. Mm-hmm.